Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. I'm coming at you with our first pod after the All-Star break. We have a, a decent amount to dive into that I'm looking forward to. Uh, you heard a new intro coming in. You can shout, shout out to Ben Roman on Twitter, a good friend of mine, does all of our intros. Really psyched about how this one turned out. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Did you enjoy your break? Um, where are you at before we, we dive into uh, we dive into the games? Right, so some important personal news for longtime listeners. During the All Star break, I located and tried Raspberry Lemonade Mountain Dew. <laughs> was it good? I mean, it's not the Giannis 50 50 mark. I don't yeah. think, I mean, I wouldn't turn it away if somebody gave it to me again, but I don't think it would be something I would go out seeking. It, t- it had a little bit of a pixie stick quality to it. It was a little, it was just too sweet. It's not the Giannis 50 50. Yeah, I don't really mess with Mountain Dew strictly because of that, that like aftertaste or aftertaste is the wrong way. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when you get like, I think it's fluoride treatment at the dentist. That's kind of how Mountain Dew feels in your mouth. Like it feels like your teeth are fuzzy and it, it bothers me because it makes me think my teeth are disintegrating because how much sugar's in it. But um, what a way to start off. Uh, I'm trying to think if I had anything like that recently. I don't think so. I had cranberry cherry juice. It was like, I don't think it was called cran cherry, but very good. It's definitely not raspberry lemonade Mountain Dew. I didn't go to the same depths to find it, but you know, it's it's a nice way to start your all star to, to have your all star break go for sure. Oh, I'm glad that we all each spent seven days seeking out special beverages to try and to kick off this podcast with. I'm sure people are still listening at this point. Oh, 100. percent Well, yeah. Um. I am certainly listening to, I actually, so fun fact, I dropped my headphones into my cup of coffee right before you joined the Zoom call. I just didn't tell you that because I didn't want to be embarrassed, but um, I'm having trouble hearing out of one of my ears right now. It it just started recently. Um, Let's start up talking about this Pacers team before I lose complete hearing due to coffee. Um, Pacers went one and one in the most uh, 21-22 Pacers fashion um, giving up 129 points to the worst offensive team by a wide margin in the NBA and then scoring 128 points on the best defense in the NBA in the year 2022. Um, I guess we can, we can start with the OKC game with this and then go into broader takeaways. Yeah, that OKC game was an experience. Yes, I mean, it was. Because, I mean, we also have to point out that Josh Giddy didn't play, Lou Dort mm-hmm. didn't play, Kenrich Williams didn't play, Ty Jerome didn't play, and Mike Mascala didn't play. And yet at halftime, the Oklahoma City Thunder had 69 points, which is the second most points they've scored in a first half all season. I think that they have also scored 70, I believe, when I looked it up against Brooklyn earlier in the year. But um, that defense, I'm having trouble understanding. I mean, I, I tweeted briefly that there are certain things that they do defensively from matchup standpoints where it's, it's getting kind of hard for me to understand the goal. Um, Just to point out a few specific examples, like I'm not saying like, I know that NBA teams don't always, I mean, some teams do more specific opponent game planning than others, but to see the big switching out as much as they did in that game, I mean, it's a double-edged sword when you switch your center out because, you know, if you have somebody like a Bam Adebayo who might be able to force, you know, negative dribbles, that's great, but then your big is out away from the rim. So if somebody cuts or, you know, does any off-ball off ball movement away from the ball, then you don't have a rim protector there. You don't have the help defender there. There was a couple times where they switched out, and then there was hard closeouts against Poku. And it just really made me wonder, like, I mean, maybe they are, maybe because they have so many people out, they're just like, you know, the easiest thing for us to do is just to be able to go out there and switch. And I don't want to, I don't want to at all make it sound like they're phoning it in, but at times when I'm watching certain things they're doing at matchups, it just really makes me shake my head a little bit. Yeah. Um, it, it was definitely questionable. I think the only thing I can maybe chalk it up to is that 
they just feel more comfortable switching with some of their guys. Like right now with Jalen and even Ijax, I think Ijax, I mean, who we'll talk about, I thought he had some better defensive plays, uh, you know, playing more around the rim than out switching than, than we're accustomed to. But like generally it feels like the bigs on the roster, other than Gogo, again, somebody else we'll have to talk about. Um, they just feel like they're, I mean, not that they're really awesome defensively, but if they have to do something defensively, it feels like switching is just an easier automatic for them. Or uh, does that make sense? Or no, it does. I mean, I think that in part when, especially with like Isaiah Jackson, you're young, it's, it can be harder to take on drop concepts. I mean, even early in the game against Boston, they did have him um, defending two on one and pick and rolls a few times. And he got mm-hmm. caught in the in-between zone. We've seen that in prior games as well, but at the same time, I just feel like they need to be more selective with it. I mean, yeah, definitely. And they got to be more active with it too. I felt like they gave up so many just wide open shots because the switch wasn't very active. Like you're, it felt like they were just handing guys off instead of um, actually trying to stop the ball with the switch sometimes. Well, yeah. I mean, and even when it turned into an isolation, I mean, that's part of it too, because in contrast, which I'm sure we'll get into when we talk about the Boston game, but Shea Gill just wasn't wasting those, those switches. If he saw Jalen or if he saw Buddy Heald or anybody, he was going right at that up until the end of the third quarter when they finally started hard trapping him to keep him out of the paint. But um, that, that certainly wasn't the only issue. Like, I don't want to just call out specific people, but Tyrese Halliburton had a lot of defensive issues in that game. Um, when they went zone in the third quarter and they, they were running some of their, I don't even necessarily want to call it a matchup zone because they actually trigger man-to-man out of that zone out of high flashes at times and you'll see them call out like flash so they were triggering into man-to-man at times and he was just getting toasted at the top of that zone um by shay by trey man then also i felt like their overall uh help the helper or like actually being on a string in rotations wasn't great because like to buddy heald's credit there was times where Shea was at the nail and he was really aggressive and came over to start, try to stop that penetration. And then you have Trey Mann at the opposite slot at like the hash mark and the guy in the corner, whether that was Lance or, you know, whoever was defending there was playing even with that check. And you really can't do that when buddy has to come that far off, you have to be up and stunting towards that shooter. Otherwise that's why Trey was then getting some of those deep threes as well as just, you know, some of the stuff that he was doing off the dribble from the slot when Shea actually had to give the ball up. So um, I just felt like they, they weren't very connected on that end of the floor. The perimeter defense continues to be what it is. And a person like Shea Gilgis Alexander is really going to exploit that. And then as well, just, I I just think that they need to be a lot more selective with what they're switching and what they aren't. But um, I don't know what your overall takeaway on the defense was in that game. Oh yeah, it was terrible. I think if we'd done start subset today, I would have sat uh, Tyrese Halliburton's on ball defense. Like, yeah, it was, I mean, he continues to be really uh, impactful and active off the ball, but the, yeah, the on ball defense has been very rough. Um, I, I think you can obviously chalk part of it up just to strength overall. Like he's not a strong player right now. Um, but also like his uh, I mean, he's got really high hips or whatever too, but the, but a lot of it too, is just, it feels like, I don't want to say that he's gambling, but um, some of the decisions he makes in defending a guy on ball, I don't really get. Um, I, I don't know if that's entire, entirely fair, but like I do, but I mean, maybe he's trying to gamble just because he does, he, he knows he's slight of frame, but um, it is certainly not uh, not ideal to watch him get absolutely torched on ball the way that he is, because even like, I mean, it happened a lot with Sacramento this year and, and last year too, like in late game scenarios, he's somebody that gets kind of switch hunted. And I do think it can get overplayed how big switch hunting is in the NBA. There are ways to counter it, but um, that's something that will be important to note going forward for sure is, is how he improves as an on ball defender. Well, yeah, because I mean, it wasn't even just when they were switching. I mean, there was times in the third quarter of that game, in addition to being at the top of the zone, that was just really squishy that they would run, you know, basic action that every NBA team does zoom. If you want to call it zoom, you want to call it Chicago, a pin down into a ball screen. And he was just getting left in the dust on that as well on like three possessions in a row that was then creating other issues where then you know Tristan Thompson or not Tristan Thompson saw TT in my notes and that's what I said Terry Taylor um, Terry Taylor is then you know having to switch out and he he wasn't faring any better on those switches against Shea Gill just than any of the other bigs were so um, and then just like a, a brief moment too on the 
the hard doubling that they started doing. What were your thoughts on that, on the trapping? Oh, God, uh, the angles that the second person was taking <laughs> to come off were I, I like I, I think I wrote in my notes, like if you're going to actually send help, then like it's got to it's got to come the right way. Like it just kind of felt like they were sending a guy to send it. And um, like, I mean, I, I didn't it certainly did not feel particularly impactful uh, is the, the way to, that I would put it. Like they were they were sending pressure, but it wasn't really in a way that was all that pressuring, in my opinion. Is that fair? Right. So earlier in the season, somewhere on my hard drive, I have a compilation of all of the times that they've trapped people this year because it was starting to become a little bit more of a thing that if Sabonis was out on an island, that they would then blitz the the switch. Like, you know, at late in the Laker game when LeBron was making all those threes, if LeBron hunted Sabonis on a switch, then they would send Torrey Craig or Malcolm Brogdon or Justin Holiday or whoever it was to hard double it to try to get the ball out of his hands. And one of the things that showed up in that game, as well as a few others when they've done this, and against Shea Gilgis Alexander, that always kind of frustrates me when NBA teams do it is if you're going to double it and force the ball out of his hand so that he passes it to the opposite side of the floor and then the, the person runs away and releases how you have to, to scramble out. Why is it the person that's staying on ball with LeBron or with Shea Gildas Alexander denying him the pass back? It's like you just trap that to get the ball out of his hands and then they just back up and let him get it right back so that you have to do it over again. I don't understand why they don't jump and position their bodies to deny him back the ball. So that was one of my issues with it. Then the other issue is exactly what you're saying. Like Lance would have his back to the screener so that they could trap it. And then like two or three times in a row, Jay Jalen Smith came up and he was taking a very strange angle that was just allowing Shea to just dribble right out of it or to split it instead of actually coming out hard to take away that first step. So there was a couple times, I think once at the end of the third, the trap itself wasn't that bad, but they passed out of it and gave up a corner three. And you're probably like, you know, at least before someone else to beat us and they made a shot and it's not like the Thunder are really well known for their shooting. So you probably accept that, but I thought it could have been executed a little bit better, even though, you know, this roster clearly isn't super familiar on that end of the floor. And you do have to build chemistry on the defensive end as well as on offense. So at times I want to give them passes, but I just think overall, I know I've said this on the last couple of pods. It's just really hard for me to understand at this point in the season. Like I'm not necessarily expecting pristine execution, especially, you know, with a center like Isaiah Jackson, who's only played a handful of games. He's only, you know, 19, 20 years old. I'm not expecting it to be pristine. I know that they're going to make some mistakes. It's just, I don't always understand like what type of shots are you wanting to give up? What are you trying to take away? Cause I, I don't, I don't exactly know the answer to that question. Yeah. It just kind of feels like we're going to play defense and yeah. we're like, okay, well, what do we want to do? And they're like, well, we want to play defense and I, it's okay, but how? And I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat with you. It just feels like very, uh, have you ever seen, uh, have you ever seen Terminator 2? No, but I'm glad that we have another obscure movie reference. So <laughs> hit me with okay. it. Well, uh, normally these analogies go to shit, but, uh, so basically at the end of Terminator 2, um, the T-1000 who was trying to kill, uh, the protagonist, like the entire movie gets thrown into a pit of like napalm or fire or whatever. Um, and basically the T-1000 is a shapeshifter and it starts like shapeshifting into all these things because it doesn't know what to do because it's on fire. And that's how I feel about the defense. Like it just keeps like trying to take on a different form and it's still not working, but it keeps doing it over and over again. And then it just, you know, we'll pretend that it doesn't die at the end. But yeah, that's how it feels watching the defense sometimes. It's just like, well, we're going to do this. Oh, well, that's not working. Oh, well, we'll do this instead. Oh, that's still not working. It's just, yeah, it's kind of gross. Yeah, well, well, we could move on to somewhat happier or funnier things from that game, perhaps. So I think that if you asked, um, if you're like, hey, Siri, what is a Lance game? I think Siri would say, well, (laughs) the Pacers Thunder game that was the first game back after the All-Star break in the year 2022. So do you want to talk about the Lance Stevenson game? Well, yeah, Lance uh, Lance Stevenson closed in that fourth quarter because Malcolm Brogdon, I I mean, I'm imagining there was a minutes restriction. I don't remember. yeah. Yeah. Um, so Malcolm Brogdon did not play in the fourth or in overtime. So Lance Stevenson closed that game. He hit a corner three off of a rebound, uh, to, to tie the game after what looked like a game where I'm also, I mean, can we just talk about like the OKC fouling up three, um, deciding not to, I mean, yeah, deciding not to, uh, 
That was a choice. That was definitely a choice. Uh, I'm definitely like, I hate it from a watchability standpoint, like fouling up three in general, but I get it from a strategic standpoint. And I was confused they didn't do it, but thank you, OKC. Um, so Lance hits that corner three and of course does a shimmy after and then uh, proceeds to take the team out of the game in overtime. Maybe that's an unfair way to put it, but like, I think my first note that I had in overtime was we have not seen a Halliburton pick and roll in the first minute and a half. And uh, yeah, I mean, it happened later on in the game, but Tyrese didn't have an awesome game against OKC and didn't shoot super well from the floor. His decision-making was a little bit off, but um, I mean, I did not really think Lance was the way to go to open up overtime, but that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, it had all of the Lance high notes. There was there was taunting, there was flexing going on in the game. There was a shimmy after a three that allowed them to go to overtime. And then there was also some moments throughout the fourth quarter, which is like one of my pet peeves. And I'm not just picking on Lance about this, just like an, a, a general basketball ick that when the opponent has the rebound, you don't need to stay around on transition defense and like try to steal the rebound or continue to like nip at the heels of the person coming up and, and try to gamble those passing lanes. And Lance did that a couple of times that then created odd man advantages for the thunder and transition that I didn't think was super helpful. But in overtime, I will slightly defend Lance a little bit, slightly, because the first possession, yeah, it was like, I believe it was just like a pick and roll or a handoff to get Lance the pull up to, which he missed. And then there, the rest of the shots, what was he, like 0-4, 0-5 in the overtime? I don't remember what, but um, one of them, which we can talk about, this will parlay into another topic. You could see in transition that Rick Carlisle tapped the top of his head, and when they do that, they generally run 1-5 pick and roll at the top with a two side and one in the corner, and then the big, it's, it's for the big to pop. And Tyrese was really using a bunch of rescreens to get traction off of that. And then when he threw it back to Jalen Smith, who was a screener to pop, Jalen mishandled the pass. So then he had to get rid of it. And it's basically the end of the clock at this point, threw it to Lance in the corner, who then ended up taking another shot. And then there was one moment where I think Tyrese was being guarded by Trey Mann and Lance was at the opposite slot and he had the big on him. So Tyrese basically did the boomerang pass and was like, which I think his, his nature is to be pass first, but in that situation, it's like, it's time for you to get into something. Like it's time for you to start orchestrating the offense. And he gave it, he did a boomerang pass right back to Lance as a lot of teams do when they have mismatches and let Lance attack it. And then that ended up being another missed shot. And I just felt like there was a lot of spots um, for Tyrese in the overtime and late for a number of reasons where I just didn't feel like he was necessarily making the best decision, which isn't how I felt the prior four games or in the next game against Boston. I mean, he himself said he needed to be more aggressive. I thought he was too deferential and just like that, like that's, that's being too deferential. It doesn't need to be, you know, that many possessions leading to Lance jumpers. And uh, so I think it's a little bit of both. I don't necessarily think it was like Lance, totally hijacking the offense as it was other aspects of the offense. I mean, they were struggling to get into stuff in the fourth quarter, which I know I made the thread yesterday, which some people pushed back on me a little bit because Rick Carlisle had had the quote where they were at practice before, you know, the first game. And he had said that, you know, with Brogdon and Halliburton now, especially since, you know, they've been staggering them and letting Brogdon run some of the offense, the bench offense, that like, we're not going to have to, I'm not going to have to run or call plays. That's the total, you know, faith and respect I'm going to have in those two guys. And then in the fourth quarter, when the offense really started grinding and Brogdon wasn't playing, he was calling a lot of plays, which, I mean, their defense was, wasn't great. So they were taking the ball out of the net more, but um, I think it was kind of like a negative feedback loop to a certain extent where I understand why he was calling the plays because they weren't necessarily uh, locating what they needed to do in the half court on their own, but then they also weren't getting out and running because that's what was going on. So their pace really slowed down in that quarter in addition to just their overall offensive rating. So um, I kind of understood how they got to the Lance stuff, but that was an extremely Lance outcome. We'll just put it that way. Yes, 100%. Um, what other takeaways do you have from, uh, from the OKC game? I mean, mainly I just kind of incorporated two of them, mainly just how that Tyrese was incredibly pass first. And I kind of wondered if that was somewhat 
like, and I don't mean this with like a negative slant, but I think that he wanted to accommodate the fact that Malcolm Brogdon was coming back Mm -hmm. and to be sharing some of those responsibilities and that he wasn't completely dominating the ball. So I just felt like that there were spots where a few times where he kind of did a little too much in isolation and kind of weirdly asserted himself. And then others where he had lanes to get to the basket and was kind of truncating drives and passing out of them for this kind of just the sake of passing out of them to be more deferential to the players that were on the court. So I think that that could have been a little bit better balance, but overall I thought he and Brogdon played really well together. I don't know what your takeaway was from that um, particular aspect. Yeah, no, definitely. I thought so as well. Um, and especially in the Celtics game, which we can transition into, um, I really have been encouraged by him and Malcolm together. Um, and, and especially just from the Malcolm front, like he really looks healthy again, which is huge. Uh, we'll talk about his defense, I'm sure as well. But um, I mean, seeing Malcolm get to attack more out of the slot, like this is something that I um, it's more just been thinking about, like, uh, Malcolm to me is like, if you condense Harrison Barnes down into somebody who's six, five, like very similar players, you know, like strength build games really based on power drives, um, getting to attack from the slot is so big for him. Cause a, he gets a step to catch it uh, to, he gets a step to catch the ball and get into his motion before the defense is even closing out. Um, which I think is really huge for him. Like he had a lot of, uh, you know, like he would get guys going one way, like especially on Jason Tatum, he'd get him going to his left and then, you know, do his uh, his crafty steps to the right and then lay up, like go go up and under. Um, so we saw a lot from him that I think as a finisher was encouraging. I mean, he just shot, uh, he, he shot a lot more in the OKC game, which was awesome to see. Um, and he shot well just in general. But um, second side Malcolm is a lot better than just Malcolm running stuff without a screen. Uh, I will say that much. I've been very excited about that. And I thought, oh, I mean, like overall, how'd you feel about the synergy between him and Halbert? Yeah, I mean, I, I never questioned if they could fit together. I think it was mm-hmm. just more a question of how how accepting Malcolm would be of it, yeah. which I mean, in interviews, it at least publicly seems like. And maybe it's been somewhat of an awakening with the Achilles injury that like, hey, yeah. the last three seasons that I've been here. Um, I've kind of worn down and by having this other guy, he can lighten some of my load and I can still run offense. Cause I mean, he talked about that. He liked getting to run offense with the second unit and mm-hmm. saw benefits there. So, I mean, I think that Malcolm can run offense and I think some of that gets lost sometimes. Definitely. I just don't think he has the same degree of playmaking ability that Tyrese does, but I agree with you. Like he's very good at the slot drives. I mean, and this goes back to his time in Milwaukee, cause that's predominantly how he was used that he's good at using a cheat step or that if you, you know, if you're filling to that spot that you're catching it on the go, just like O'Shea's good at that as well. So that you're already getting downhill momentum before your defender's getting there. And then he's also good with his last step of getting one extra step whenever he does get stopped in the paint to be able to turn and then step toward the rim. And that was able to show off a little bit more with what type of role that, that he was in. Um, I felt like against Boston, he looked a lot more spry than he did in the Thunder game. Not yes. that he wasn't driving, but like when he'd get into the paint, it seemed like I'm not going to get to the basket. I'm going to go ahead and pass out of this because I don't quite want to plant that foot. But I thought against Boston, he didn't look like, you know, he was bothered at all. Like, I'm not saying he didn't necessarily feel any pain. It just didn't look like he was thinking about it as much as in the prior game. Yeah, no, definitely. I think uh, I'd have to go and look at what his paint touches were in both games, but it felt like he got to the paint a lot more against Boston. It was more willing to finish too. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely there with you. Um, well, let's, let's talk about what actually the, the difference in the shot making and the Boston game um, and just the defense changed from the OKC to the Boston game. So I looked this number up this morning. So just as a, a comparison, on contested threes, which again, I want to make the caveat here for people who don't know, the uncontested contested stuff that uh, the NBA's tracking data shares can be you know, a little bit hinky because those cameras don't see limbs. So in terms of what actually is you know, a closeout and what isn't, you have to take somewhat with a grain of salt. But on threes that were contested, as in not six feet of space, um, the Pacers shot above 35% on, they were seven of 19 on contested threes, whereas Boston was eight of 23. So below 35% on threes that were categorized as wide open. So um, did you think that the Pacers 
made any improvements defensively against the Celtics or did you just feel like the Celtics were missing shots? Uh, I think it was a little bit of both. Like I thought their zone was a lot more active. Um, like I, so I felt better about the defense, but I still didn't think it was very good. Like I think, I mean, Jason Tatum went two of 12 from three and a lot of those were wide open. Same thing with Marcus smart one for seven. Um, like Peyton Pritchard hit everything in sight. It felt like, but for the most part, I, I think a lot of it was shot variants, but um, I mean, it also came down to as well. Like, I don't understand why they didn't just run the Rob Williams uh, slot slip a million times because it felt like he got a, I think all of his points came from that. It felt like almost, but um, yeah, yeah I think he caught almost every big with that, that was out there. I oh think. yeah. It was it, every, every time he lined up in the side, I was like, here it comes again. And I just, I was, I was at the point where it's just running like halfback dive and mad and just keep doing it until the defense can't stop because I'm not sure the Pacers would have been able to, but um yeah, so long story short, I think it was a little bit of both, but but shot variance played a big part in it. Yeah, and I think that that's something like from the prior game. I mean, Boston was making every three in sight, and the Pacers were just, you know, because of the way that Boston defends, they were they were kind of trading twos for threes, and it just mm-hmm. was going to be a math problem. So in the sake that the Pacers actually have the ability to come out on the right side of shot variance now because they have more shooters – Um, I think that that's a takeaway that should be considered, but also I agree with you that they were, I mean, like the number I just shared, they're eight of 23 on wide open threes. Um, I think that that was part of it. And I also thought that some of Tatum's shot selection was a little bit iffy. I mean, I think the teams was as a whole, because I mean, compare and contrast him to the way that you were seeing Shea Gilgis Alexander when he had Jalen Smith on a switch or when he had Buddy Heald on a switch, there were times where Tatum had favorable matchups and he just kind of, it wasn't even like creating space with a step back three. He just kind of chucked a three when, you know, the whole left side of the floor was clear with him and Jalen. Jalen came out of the two, three zone because they had triggered man to man. He pulled him out to the perimeter. And then instead of like actually shaking him and, and creating space for himself, he just tossed up a three. So I don't really think that it has so much to do with the Pacers defense as, you know, Boston was on the second night of a back-to-back. And I thought that they very much looked like a team on the second night of a back-to-back kind of on both ends of the floor. Yeah. Defensively too. They were like not even close to what they normally look like defensively. Right. So, I mean, I, th- I think that that matters, but as a comparison to what I said earlier about whenever Buddy was having to go to the nail against Shea Gilgis and then Trey Mann was open, there was times where they were doing that same rotation in this game. And it, you could tell that they had made the adjustment that they were much more connected with their help defense so that that guy in the corner was actually stunting up to the player opposite from where they were helping. So I felt like that help defense rotation was better. I'm with you. I thought that the top of the zone that they were actually, you know, containing the ball a little bit better than what they did in the prior game. So um, I did think that there was some improvement, but I think that, that the shot variance was definitely a factor, but you know, they also weren't defending in the same way as they did in the prior game. Cause I still don't know. I mean, not that it necessarily matters now, but, you know, they were having Miles and Sabonis hedge in that game against Boston, and then they were treating Al Horford when he was out on the pop like he was Dirk Nowitzki or something, and they were trying to cover up for all the perfect recovery angle angles by rushing at him, and then they were leaving Jalen and Jason open, which is really what kind of led to some of that early them getting buried under three-pointers, but um, different schemes changed things up, doing a lot more switching now with the personnel that they have, and um, Boston didn't make those same shots and the Pacers did make the shots. So um, I think that that matters moving forward, that they actually have the personnel that can, you know, like I said, be on the, the positive side of, of shot variance. But flowing from there, what was your impression when you saw the starting lineup and that Buddy Heald was staying in it and that Chris Duarte was going to be coming off the bench? Um, I mean, I guess I would just say that I'm not that surprised. Um which sounds like it sounds rich in, in hindsight, but I mean, a big reason for why Buddy wanted to leave Sacramento is because he wasn't starting. Like he's been very vocal, uh, vocally. I mean, uh, vocal without saying as much that he wanted to, wants to be a starter and he thinks he's a starter. Um, like that's been reported for the last couple of years. So um, I think in terms of like, they know what it is with the season ending. Um, so I mean, Crystal played close to starter minutes, but I agree. Like, it, I'm well, actually just kidding. But he played 38 freaking minutes last night. Uh, so it was a little bit different. Um, but ultimately, like, I, I do get it. Um, even if I think, like, it's a better idea for Chris to be starting. But I get why he's starting. So I, I wasn't surprised. Sorry, that was a really, really long ramble to get to the answer. 
I mean, I wasn't completely surprised, especially once I saw Chris playing, because I don't know how you felt, but I felt that there were several spots in that game where he was just flat out gimpy. Like, I mean, you could tell that I, I'm not going to say that he was 100% or that it wasn't good for him to be playing, but he didn't look like he was moving right off of that foot with the toe injury to me and, and several different spots. I mean, especially there was like a stretch in the third quarter where they were trying to post Goga a couple times. And when he had to turn end to end, Chris did, like you could see a bit of a limp. Um, there was one time under the basket where it looked like he had kind of stubbed that toe and was in a little bit of pain. So um, it might've just been a case of him having sat out, you know, through the all-star break, just thinking that they probably want to keep Buddy there. And then also like Buddy is doing a lot of valuable things. I mean, you can see how much, I mean, not just even the shot making and the, and the scoring, it goes beyond that. Like he's, even if he doesn't have the ball, he's stretching the floor and not even just as like a weak side floor spacer. Like he's doing very small things like using little shallow cuts above pick and rolls to remove stunters and um, just constantly moving away from the ball. And also like just off a pin down, like when he comes off just a basic pin down from Goga, two people go with him and then Goga can veer to the basket. Now we can question why Derek White is blocking Goga at the basket, but it was open. <laughs> Point being that when, when Buddy moves, that, they're, that he generally opens things for his teammates in a way that probably nobody else on this roster is going to do. So I see the value of using him as the starter. And I guess for the rest of this season, maybe you're not totally bothered if he continues to start. But um, I do think that's going to be something to monitor moving forward if, if you're not going to be finding time for your lottery pick to be getting minutes against starting caliber talent, but I guess that also just matters with how else the, the roster shakes out and what they plan on doing with the veterans when the season ends, but. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, just to harp on Buddy for a second, um, I've been so impressed with him. Like, I'm not trying to take a victory lap here. I just, I've always loved Buddy Heald in his game. Like the defense is, is just, is awful for the most part. Like he's not a good defender. I do think he is, I mean, it's not an effort issue. In Indiana, at least, um, he just his paths and closeouts are bad. He's not awesome at the point of attack, but I do think he's been trying. Um, but like you mentioned with the off-ball movement, like he is just—I know that the the shooting can be maddening sometimes. I do think he's reined in his shot selection a little bit, um, at least the last game or two. There were a couple of games earlier, and not so much. But um, like the the playmaking that he's able to exhibit with the space that he has, like he again, like his ball placement isn't amazing or anything, but. If he, like the windows that he gets afforded because of how incredible of a shooter he is and how much gravity he he maintains um, because of it, like he's he's really impressed me with with this uh, with this stretch here. Like I mean, he's putting up. It's not just numbers. I mean, we saw the um, the stats at the end of the year last year were pretty pretty wild for some of the starters um, because of the way the pace was playing, and I'm sure that factors in here too. But I mean, buddy, 22 points, six boards, five assists on ridiculous shooting percentages like he's almost 50 49 year right now 38 percent from three on nine a game like he's just been very good um and it's been fun to watch and i think one of the questions i wanted to ask you out of this i mean how have you felt about the three guard starting lineup i know it's kind of like quasi guard because malcolm's like essentially like a small forward sometimes but um you know just the way that they're all moving together and kind of playing in tandem how what have you thoughts of it thought of it just in general yeah, I mean, I don't have an issue with it. I mean, like I just said, I think it, it's pretty valuable when you have Buddy at the one slot and they'll, you know, run a pick and roll with Tyrese and he'll relocate from that slot to the other one below the pick and roll as it goes so that that tag isn't there. Then you can also have Brogdon in an opposite corner. Like overall, they just have, you know, a lot more credible spacing that people have to account for. I think that they could even use like, I used the word shallow cut earlier and it that was just like a descriptor for how shallow the actual cut was. Whereas a shallow cut is an actual thing in the NBA that I think you could probably even be using buddy even more to distort tagging with than they already have. I mean, I, I kind of thought all along that they were probably going to go with the three guard because like we've said before, they don't have any wings unless TJ Warren, you know, pops up and says he's going to play again. They don't necessarily have another option. And and offensively, if you're going to really be leaning into that side of the floor, like what they had to do against OKC and what it seemed like they've been doing, then there's a lot of reason to have Buddy out there. Because, I mean, the playmaking too, like to his credit, I also want to give some credit to the bigs because they've been very good at slipping out. Like he's yeah. not really a guy who's going to be generating, you know, downhill pressure on a big and a drop that's going to have to account for him. It's more standstill. Like I come off the pick and 
then they have to account for me as a shooter and I make a standstill shot. So it, it goes to Jalen and Ijax and um, t- Terry Taylor as well, that they get out of those picks quickly enough that those windows are there. So um, I think that's a big part of it too. He's, he's obviously playing really big minutes, which I think has been somewhat of a negative in some of the games. I mean, Tyrese didn't play as many against Boston, um, but Buddy once again is at 38 and, I think that that shows up sometimes at the end of games, but um, in the case of Boston, they looked like they were on the second night of a back-to-back. I mean, it was pretty crazy because in the fourth quarter, trying to look, yeah, they actually stole minutes during the fourth quarter with this lineup on the floor where they they did not give up any lead. I think they actually might've built on the lead against Boston. Dwayne Washington, Duarte, Buddy Heald, Jalen, and Ijax. Like, I mean, there's basically no point guard out there on the floor and, and they maintained and or built the lead in part because Buddy was doing a lot of the offensive directing. Like he was calling out where people needed to be and doing stuff. And he's only been playing for the Pacers for six games. That was interesting. After they played the Thunder, he got asked a question in the postgame presser. And this is me paraphrasing because I don't have the direct quote and I don't want it to sound like it was a veiled shot. But he did. Somebody brought up that like, oh, you're your highest scoring games this year have been with the Pacers. And he's like, Oh yeah, you noticed that. And he's like, well, I just have a lot more freedom to be doing what I do here. And, you know, it, it kind of felt like kind of how, you know, whenever Nate Bjorkren took over and Malcolm Brogdon made some of the comments that more so than praise for Nate Bjorkren kind of felt like uh, criticism for Nate McMillan. It, yeah. it felt similar to that, that it was more so criticism for Luke Walton and Alvin Gentry. And I do think that with regard to the shot selection, I mean, he, he does have quite a bit of freedom to be taking about uh, any shot yeah. that he sees fit with the current way that the team is and how, how um, who's out there and given how much they need him as, as a movement shooter. But let's move into the other massive positive from the Celtics game. O'Shea. And when I say O'Shea, I'm subbing out the E and replacing it with six threes. Cause that's how many huh. he made. That's that was that was nice. Uh, yeah, O'Shea hit a a three out of a ghost screen, and I just ascended to a higher plane. Honestly, I was like, oh wow, he's that. If that's like an actual thing where he's hitting some threes off movement like that, and he has a little bit this year, but if that's um, becoming an actual thing, that's just like, oh wow. Um, he like even in the OKC game, I thought like the the shooting from the floor wasn't great, but like you like just what you're talking about with the moving. Um, his ability to fill lanes, uh, the way that he leaks out in transition um, and picks his spots well to do it too. Like he doesn't just leave uh, the defense for dead. Um, he's been just an absolute joy to watch. Uh, like the, and especially like you mentioned, like hitting, hitting the six threes was, was fantastic. And all of them are like, so much comes on relocation. I think you, uh, you might've clipped this, but um there was, I think it was a Malcolm drive and O'Shea just lifts from the corner. Like it's a small, simple thing, but um, I think it was Daniel Tice uh, was on O'Shea and he, he came over and helped and um, just him lifting the corner makes it a harder closeout. And he hits the shot too, which is extremely important for that. But like, he's so good at lifting. He's so good at relocating and just moves without the ball. Like there was a play too in uh, man, which game was it? I don't think it was the Washington game, but. Um, I'm trying to remember, but it was, it was, it was, uh, prior to the all-star break, but he came off of a, a closeout and the, the ball got tipped. I mean, no, he, he cut from, a from, he cut baseline, the ball got tipped when it got passed to him, but then he jumps out of bounds, throws it back in to, to buddy healed in the corner and the ball swings, swings, but, um, O'Shea, while that's happening, moves from underneath the basket and relocates the corner ball. Can, I mean, gets swung all the way around him. He's wide open from three and like, not to just praise him because he moves so well without the ball, but like most guys just don't do that. And that's not saying that they're good or bad for doing that, but like he, he just adds such an element like that. And I, I, I've, if you can tell, I've been waiting to talk about okay. Uh, my dog has to apparently, but um, he's, yeah, he was so good last night and he's just been, He's putting it all together. It makes me happy. Oh, I thought he was very critical for the way that Boston defends, and it did not show up in the prior two games yeah. um, at all with with that position. I mean, slightly with Torrey Craig. I mean, I shouldn't say slightly. Torrey was good in the first game 
with his off ball cutting around the, the post double teams and that he was actually hitting some threes out of the post double teams, but did it, it didn't actually impact the way Boston was defending O'Shea in the second quarter actually made them change what they were doing. So <clears throat> sorry for coughing. Um, entering into last night's game, he was two of his last 15 threes. So again, shot variance. It, it helps when you actually knock down those attempts like he did in the, in the second quarter when he made four of the six that he made for the game. But he also caught the window on Boston's rotation where Tice is defending at the four. I mean, just so, so for people that don't know, and this has been the case in all three games against the Pacers, I brought it up in the prior matchup, but Robert Williams in Boston's scheme doesn't generally defend the person who's going to be the screener. So like in prior matchups, if Sabonis was going to be the screener, Robert Williams is going to guard Miles Turner and Grant Williams is going to guard Sabonis so that Boston could switch that. Then if they got it into the post, then they would bring Robert Williams over to double Sabonis in the post as well as sometimes another defender. So you really have to do something to occupy Robert Williams if you're going to combat the way that Boston defends. And they've been doing the same thing with Tice and minutes when he plays at the four and Grant Williams still will defend the five. So that's what matchup O'Shea was, was getting as the starting four. So like that play that you just mentioned, I did clip it this morning because there's been flashes of this over the last several games since the trade happened where, you know, the, the rule of thumb is, and he wasn't on the weak side in that particular clip, but if you're on the weak side and your tagger goes in, then you should go up. If your tagger goes with a high tag to go up, then you should stay down. And Prior to O'Shea was kind of more of a standstill shooter where he would stay in the corner rather than raising up and he's raising up. So as that pick and roll is progressing, then Daniel Tice has a much longer closeout out of that rotation to get to him. And it felt like that was very deliberate for that game, knowing that that's the way that Boston defends and that they're going to have a big defending at the four spot. In addition to what you're saying, just everything else he did, he also did you know, like what we mentioned with Brogdon, the cheat, the cheat step, whenever he's curling up to the top, like a curl fill um, cutting from the 45. So by the end of the second quarter, after he had knocked down all those shots, they come out and Goga ended up closing out the frame and Robert Williams was defending Goga as the screener. And they had Grant Williams switched over to O'Shea because they knew they had to start covering him. And then they even downsized and then Tatum was guarding O'Shea. So there might be certain times throughout the game where you might see that slightly different because they might get cross-matched in transition. But like in the prior game um, at home that the Pacers played, like the Boston was so egregious with it that Robert Williams was defending Torrey Craig and it wasn't even Tatum or Jalen Brown defending Miles. It was Josh Richardson. Um, so that was never a matchup that they managed to force Boston to reconsider in either of those prior two games. Like I said, even in the this ain't P one, when Miles didn't play in the fourth quarter and Torrey Craig did because he was being more active and they wanted to be trapping Jalen and, and Jason, um, they didn't even flip-flop it then. Like they kept Robert Williams on Torrey Craig throughout most of that. So um, I really can't say enough about O'Shea and what he meant for altering that in addition to, you know, just having Malcolm Brogdon and Tyrese Halliburton. Like when they played in Boston, they were starting Kiefer and Lance and that made it a little bit easier to also like Marcus Smart was just going under while they were switching those pick and rolls. And well, you're not doing that against Tyrese Halliburton. So um, when you have somebody out there that can also attack the perimeter mismatch and then you have Malcolm at the slot, like that opened up a lot for them. I'm not going to say that this is like some super meaningful win that means stuff for next year, but you could see ways that the current personnel shifted shifted what they were doing defensively that wasn't happening in the prior two games uh can we can we also just take a moment to appreciate him absolutely dusting daniel tice out of the corner with the behind the back yes yes that was awesome oh my god it happened and (laughs) i think i had like four or five people tag me with the with the clip of it uh when once it got posted and that was oh man that was so great um are you worried about his free throw shooting at all? I know it's very random, but no, it's not random because I think I brought that as a, yeah, as I a think, starter. Yeah, I think I brought that up on the prior pod because his his form shooting on free throws looks different than his release when he shoots threes. Yeah. Like I, I don't know why he holds and releases the ball at the free throw line in the way that he does. So um yeah, I mean, I think slightly concerned because of what that number is. I mean, the Pacers as a whole, that was a big problem against Oklahoma City. I mean, it's not something that we're going to sit here and harp on because you hope that, you know, the team will naturally improve. But um, that's something that I've been noticing for several games now that his his release doesn't look the same on free throws as it does when he's shooting threes. 
Yeah, it's been very weird, um, especially, and I, it's been more noticeable because of how much he's getting to the line, which that uh, that other part has been cool. Like, um, yeah, I mean, he's getting to the line a ton. Yeah, four, just over four times a game in, in the last six since he's been starting. And, I mean, it's palpable. Like, obviously, getting some and ones would be very nice, too. Um, that work in progress there still. But, uh, yes, uh, something to monitor moving forward for sure. Um can I, I, one other thing I wanted to hit on too, how'd you feel about Malcolm's defense, especially in the Boston game? Um, I thought, I thought the defense was pretty solid in the Boston game. He had like this weak side rotation block on Jason. Yeah. Taylor. I was like, Oh wow. I haven't seen Malcolm do that like once this year. So that was pretty cool. No, the activity I felt was better. Like even yeah. when you can see that they're making some execution errors, like what we said with uh, Robert Williams and the slot mm-hmm. slips, um, I thought everybody's activity level in terms of getting to like even Buddy Heald in the fourth quarter had some deflections yeah. that I thought were fairly valuable. I mean, he took it away like Jason was trying to get a uh, middle of the floor isolation and he overplayed that and tapped it out from behind. I think he got another deflection against Jalen Brown. What you're saying about Malcolm rotating over to get that block. Um, I thought Tyrese Halliburton got his hands on some plays a couple times. I thought the top of the zone was better. So um, just from a watchability standpoint, the defense was better in that regard. Yeah. Um, well, do you want to talk a little bit about Jalen's? Well, let's talk about the front court rotation because yes. I think that's that's where we should go next because uh, that'll talk about Jalen Smith too. Um, so Goga really did not play against OKC, and he played like two minutes, and then he played a lot uh, against the Celtics. Some some might say too much, uh, just from a from a winning perspective. Uh, but in terms of actually playing him, I think it made sense that he played. Um, where are you at with this front court rotation right now? Because it's been kind of wonky. Well, let me ask you this. So Goga in the OKC game comes in at the end of the first quarter and plays 90 seconds and then doesn't play again. Terry Taylor against Boston doesn't play at all Agreed. until garbage time. So what do you think was the thought process there? Like, I'm not necessarily saying, cause I mean, sometimes Terry plays at the four Goga isn't going to play at the four. So it wasn't like necessarily one for one swap, but what do you think the thought process was and, and leaning more into Goga for that matchup than what had been the case against Oklahoma city when Terry Taylor was getting minutes. I mean, the only thing I can really, and see, even then, like I could, I could, I could say, well, OKC doesn't really play a big, but they did like they played Oliver Sar, I think 23 minutes in that game. And he's pretty strictly a five, like he's a little bit mobile, but um, I I didn't think that there wasn't a reason to play Goga in that game last night. I mean, maybe the case is like, oh, well, you can play on Rob Will or, or Tice, but even then, like both those guys are more mobile and uh, are at least capable of maintaining both front court spots than, than Goga is. So I didn't really get that, especially because we saw what Goga's defense looked like, even when he was playing the five against Rob Will. Um but I digress. Like I didn't, it almost felt like, Oh, well, we didn't play him last night. So he needs to play tonight. Um, Yeah, it did. It felt a little bit like a knee jerk reaction. Um, In the Oklahoma city game, he did have like a fairly egregious error where Lance was kind of icing Shea Gilgis. And then he was completely out of position for that. And shortly after he came out um, and then didn't come back in and play. And it might've just been a thought process there that they were doing a lot of switching in that game, whether I think that they should have been switching all of it or not, they were doing a lot of switching. So they might've just thought that Goga didn't fit what they wanted to do. And then in Boston, they relaxed some of the switching. And I think my thought is maybe the coaching staff was considering what I just said about the matchups that typically Robert Williams. And then during the brief span, when Daniel Tice also kind of operates the same way that the big, isn't going to get defended by him. They're going to get defended by Grant Williams and then they're going to switch. So it might not be an awful thing, which they did try to do with various bigs throughout the game because of that type of coverage that Goga probably of the bigs that they have is the most likely person to be able to post somebody up and actually like get to a hook shot. Now it didn't exactly happen because in the third quarter, he got an offensive foul hooking somebody out of the post. And then when they ran the same little three-man action between him and Malcolm Brogdon and Duarte again, he ended up, I think, just flat out losing the ball. So it didn't happen. But my thought is that maybe that they were thinking that, hey, we might need to attack 
that type of a matchup because they did look at both Miles and Sabonis in the post at times in the prior game. And like, just to put it out there, like there were times where I think they posted or got Isaiah Jackson on a duck in once and he drew a foul. Yeah. And they tried to post Jalen and Ijax twice against Peyton Pritchard on a slip and Jalen like strangely couldn't get any leverage in that situation and had to pass out of it twice. So I kind of want to give him the benefit of the doubt and think that was the reason because like we know that Terry Taylor can be very aggressive attacking switches in a different way, which is slipping out of screens ahead of the switch. But generally speaking, while that did work against the Wizards when Raul Neto was the person slipping out, when Boston is active and engaged, they're better at protecting against those slips than what Washington was. So I think that Terry is a is a person who can do something against switches, just not in the same way that Goga can. So I want to be charitable and think that that was the reason. But also, like, given that they have already taken his option, it didn't necessarily make a lot of sense that Goga only played 90 seconds unless you're thinking that he's not going to be in your long-term plans. Yes. Um, I'm completely on board with you. Um, I and I also want to be non-charitable for a second. I just think Terry <laughs> Taylor has been too good to, to, to play only garbage time against the Celtics. Um, like, I mean, where were you at with that? Because even, I mean, even if you think that, like, I mean, I know you, you don't think this, but like, I mean, like you mentioned, he can play the four. Like, I, I honestly think that I would like to see him get some opportunities just to play the three because he's at least three sized and this team doesn't have threes. So, I mean, find out what happens. I don't know. Um, like, I don't know. He's just been too good. And it's not just production. Like, I wrote about this uh, before the weekend. Like, it's not just him putting up numbers. Like, he has been legitimately impactful. So, um, I, I was pretty frustrated by that last night. I didn't really get that. I know that the team won, but um, it was a little bit odd. Yeah, I mean, that might have just been – I mean, O'Shea played 33 minutes, and mm-hmm. when he was rolling to the degree that he was at the four – that might've been the thought process because like just looking at the front court combinations and what I was saying before, it was very curious to me too. Sometimes what matchups Jalen draws when he's technically playing offensively at the four. Cause like, that's how they were using him. Like he was the spacer when he was out there in minutes with Isaiah Jackson and the Celtics weren't recognizing it that way. Like they were putting Robert Williams on uh, Jalen Smith, even though, I mean, reverse that. They were putting Robert Williams on Isaiah Jackson, even though he was going to be the screener and putting Grant Williams on Jalen, which is the opposite of what they would normally do. And sometimes like even in Cleveland, when Jalen and and Ijax played together, when they played the Cavs, I mean, it was the same thing where Jarrett Allen was guarding Jalen Smith, like out to the corner and then helping off. So um, it's interesting that it feels like opponents are recognizing Jalen more as the person that's going to be involved in the screening action when in reality it's Isaiah Jackson who is. So that was another person who was sopping up some minutes at the four because they were playing those two guys together. So there wasn't really necessarily, I mean, now that Isaiah is back, which wasn't the case before the all-star break, there isn't as clear of a path for Terry to get minutes unless you're taking them from Goga. So um, I think both of us have kind of, voiced our frustrations with certain things that don't seem to be, I mean, I don't want to be overly harsh, but like certain mistakes that Goga continues to make both defensively. And once again, like I'm looking at, yeah, the box score Goga was one of three. And on like the one play I mentioned before, like buddy healed draws two defenders coming off a pin down Goga's wide open. And somehow Derek white rotates over and is able to block his shot. Um, there was another time where he again brought the ball down below his knees and ended up turning the ball over, turn the ball over on the post up. So, I mean, it's stuff like that where you need to be able to hang your hat on something with him. And I do think that he can pass and kind of keep the offense flowing in a decent way, but that's really the only like certain edge I can give him over the other bigs that are available. I don't know what you think. Well, yeah. And it's hard too, because um, like him not really being a shooter is fine, but uh, like not knowing where to be on the court is a problem. Like, um, like you mentioned, like he's good when he's able to to do some of the the post sub things. Like he he can be fine with that, and he can be useful. But then when he doesn't have the ball in his hands, it's kind of like, okay, well, what is Goga doing out there? Because the defense doesn't really care. Like even if he's in the dunker spot, like like you mentioned, like okay, well, 
He's not scoring out of the dunker spot for the most part. Like they have a pretty good chance to just block him or or, or force him into a bad bad miss. And um, I mean the defense, like that stretch you're talking about, it felt like he had like 17 fouls in four 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 minutes. Like it was a lot. Um, and I'm not trying to be unfair and harsh. It's just um, it just feels like he's really regressed in some ways. Almost like it felt like there were times last year where he would have been a little bit better. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, because I, I did feel like last year, I mean, I thought his overall sense for it felt like he had um, better feel last year to court degree. mapping and understanding yeah. of space. And some of that might've been playing with TJ McConnell, honestly. Yeah. Cause it felt like the two of them had a fairly decent synergy in his minutes that when TJ attacked, he would kind of replace into the area that TJ just dribbled from on the perimeter and get a three. And then they would run that play where effectively like if TJ and O'Shea and Gogo were playing at the same time, um, a little flip action on the wing where TJ attacks sideline, then O'Shea would attack from the 45 and Gogo would naturally be wide open. It felt like he knew how to space himself. And I do think, I feel like he plays okay random that if a set breaks down and the ball gets thrown to him, it's not near to the level of like a Sabonis or a hub type player, but I, I think that he's ahead of where the rest of the players are on the roster in that respect. And just like, I mean, a small thing like Isaiah Jackson did have, he was five of six from the field finished well on lobs yesterday, but he did have a few moments offensively where you want him to have a little bit better recognition where like, I think it was the end of, I want to say either the first or the second quarter where Jalen Brown um, was defending him cross-matched in transition and Tyrese was going right at Tice to go, you know, to the rim and Ajax like came up to bring him a screen and Tyrese is kind of like, you know, what are you doing? I don't want to switch of Jalen Brown and kind of bumped him off his spot. And then Tyrese ended up throwing the ball out of bounds because he got bumped and Jalen Smith didn't get the ball. And then there was another moment where it didn't really quite seem like Buddy was having to give Ajax a lot of directions on what the actual action was. And then there was like a three main span action whenever Ajax ended up getting the offensive foul where um, he like ran into Buddy as the back screener instead of letting him leak out and release. So um, he had some moments too. It's just that when you look at Isaiah Jackson, you just see a higher ceiling and upside Um, to be frank. So you understand why he continues to get the minutes, even when he does make mistakes like that. So um, I think that Rick was kind of asked how he lands on some of the front court rotations, I think after the OKC game and said, you know, that's a good question. Sometimes it sounded to me like it wasn't even completely necessarily about matchups. It was just like, how is the flow of the game? Like if, if we're, if we've given up, like for instance, an eight Oh run, they might think, well, let's just switch it up and get other guys out there. Or maybe, you know, give guys more of a chance to dig out of the hole, but um, that it's, it, it sounded like it's still a work in progress in terms of fit, figuring out what combinations work. It's just that, you know, when they head into the off season, that what Jalen Smith's contract situation is, that Goga's option is already being picked up unless they plan on doing something. And I'm not saying they are, but unless they do like a TJ leaf where, you know, he gets moved to open up space. Like, I don't know how robust Jalen's market's going to be. I kind of hesitate to think that he's going to be getting any types of exceptions from teams. So um, while they can't offer him more than what the option already was, it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a ton of competitors there, but it is a dynamic that when you are giving him minutes and if he does, you know, continue to shoot the three at like a seemingly I can, I will honestly tell you, Mark, I did not see Jalen Smith shooting nearly 50% from three being a thing when, when they acquired him from Phoenix. So, you know, if, if that continues, then maybe he does get a few more suitors, but it has been a little bit difficult to follow which bigs are getting minutes and when. I will say um, the, the minutes with Jalen and Ajax together uh, yesterday were kind of fun. I liked it. Um, it wasn't perfect, but like, um, they were just, they, they were active. Like the, the, like just seeing that amount of length and athleticism on court was like, ah, okay. I kind of get it. Like, um, again, it wasn't perfect, but I, you saw it happen. I was like, all right, this is, this is like semi-interesting to me. Well, I enjoy how Jalen pretty actively looks to cut underneath the basket on pick mm-hmm. and rolls to open up space. And Tyrese has found him a couple of times with some really nifty like wraparound passes in those situations in all the games. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I always pay attention to defensive matchups and like watching that unit makes me wonder like if Miles plays minutes with Ajax, 
I tend to think that kind of like with what's happening with Jalen, that Ajax is probably going to be the screener um, and Miles would be out on the periphery. And then it makes me question, like, if you are playing Boston, given how Boston interpreted that, I think it's still going to be a situation where, like, Ajax is going to be drawing fives. Like, where, you know, I don't think Robert Williams anticipated that he was going to be the screener that much, and that's why he was defending him rather than Grant Williams. But um, it's just been – it's been very interesting to watch which one of them is drawing the four or the five when both of them are out there and, and to try to project what will happen when Miles is, is finally able to play again. Yeah, I'm so interested to see that just because yeah. – uh like, I mean, just where, where we've gone with this season. Uh, I mean, I I think I maybe lean a little bit closer to seeing how Ajax could be a four in time. But like you're mentioning, like, I mean, defenses don't see him as a four right now. And that matters a lot more than how the team sees him. Like, how the defense sees you and, and guards you is going to matter a lot more than what the roster says. So, um I mean, if he's going to be used a lot more as a screener, and obviously, I mean, you can have more than one guy as a screener. But yeah. If if Miles thinks he's going to be the primary pick and roll option, um, I don't know about that. If unless I mean, like, I don't know if Ajax can be a starter or anything next year. There's so much up in the air. Like, if this team thinks they're going to be contenders next year or whatever the team actually views themselves as or thinks they will be next year, I unless some massive outlier growth happens, I'm not sure I see Isaiah Jackson as a starter next year. But um, alas, yeah, it's. It is interesting. It feels like we went for like obviously not to the same degree, but we went from having a uh, a lot of questions about the front court to having even more questions about the front court. Like they just kind of amoebaed. Like they went from uh, or would it be my, no? It's mitosis. Never mind. It's like mitosis. Um, went from having like two really big questions, like does Goga exist and how what's going to happen with Miles and Domas, to now like well, there's like five guys here and we have to find ways to play all of them, but. Yeah, and I do just want to point out, like, to give O'Shea more props here for what he he does in a role as, as like, I won't use the glorified floor spacer phrase necessarily because it's not like the, all that O'Shea does is, is shoot threes or that that's necessarily even his best skill. But I think what he demonstrates pretty actively is that you can find your own usage playing away from the ball in this offense. Like they're not running. I mean, they have incorporated a few different sets since they've made the trades, obviously not doing as much with triangle and post concepts, but he, right. I mean, just like in that game, he attempted 14 shots against the Celtics and he wasn't being, I mean, aside from the fact that I did think it was, it was a savvy move to involve him as the ghost screener. So that when he was drawing Robert Williams and Tice, they had to defend that, which bigs normally don't have to defend. Like he wasn't being regularly used as a screener. He was finding shots because he moves and creates sight lines for guards to find him. He's resourceful, like regardless of which big ends up being used as a screener or not a screener. If Isaiah Jackson does start with miles or if it's, you know, TJ Warren comes back and it's miles, which one, whichever one of them isn't involved in the action, there's still ways to find shots. If, if you purpose yourself to find them and O'Shea pretty actively shows that. If miles did that the same way he did last year, how different do you think it looks for him right now? Because I feel like, I mean, we, we've talked about this before. Like, he was so much – like, he was almost like the best cutter on the team last year before O'Shea started playing. Yeah, I mean, I do think that Miles improved at it. I think that yeah. by comparison to his first several years in the league, he's been better at, at making himself available. But I don't think that his – I think generally if he's going to get more shots, it's going to be because plays have been run for him. Like, I just don't think that consistently he's going to find his own usage. Yeah. Because in this offense, like a lot more of it is random. Whereas in Nate Bjorkren's, I won't say that it was overly orchestrated because I do think he let Sabonis play out of random some, probably more than what was the case early this season. But like those 45 cuts were scripted. Like the back cuts on post-ups were what Nate Bjorkren wanted. Um, When, like I said, it was pretty much an automatic that if TJ McConnell drove baseline, you were expected to cut from that angle. Now, some guys are better at it than others, and I give Miles and O'Shea credit because they generally time that pretty well, whereas sometimes guys can do it too early, and then you're just bringing an extra defender in there and clogging up space. But, I mean, I think some of that was by the direction of Nate Bjorkran. It's just... It just bothers me because, like, I think that, I mean, we've talked about it on the prior podcast, that Miles is going to have more space than he's ever had, and Tyrese is going to be a better playmaker. So I fully expect that, like, 
and he has rolled more this year, that there will be more opportunities for him in that regard, the same way that we've seen him when he's in solo five minutes. I just don't, I never agreed with the idea that there wasn't, even if the roster had stayed the same, there was places for him to get more shots, whether plays were being called for him or not. And there's been games, especially these two against Boston where Torrey Craig and O'Shea showed that. So yeah. we'll see. Um, is there anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here? I think we covered just about everything. No, I think we covered everything pretty thoroughly, or at least I hope people think that we did. I try to do as much preparation for these as posit- as possible as do you, so it doesn't sound like we're just like making stuff up. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think we are good. Oh, one uh, one quick shout out. Uh, shout out to Tyler Marsh. He is, uh, I believe, done with the Pacers now. After this season, he's going to go coach. Uh, he just signed a contract with the Las Vegas Aces to go join Becky Hammond's staff. So, good luck to him. Um, I think that's pretty pretty much it news-wise. Um, only other Pacers thing, Tyreek Evans potentially trying out with the Milwaukee Bucks. So I uh, I genuinely hope things work out for him. I know a lot of fans uh, do not remember him fondly for his time here, and I, I completely understand that, but I hope things work out for him. Um, Caitlin, are you, uh, are you seeking out any new beverages before our next podcast? I mean, I know people are probably waiting for my next review. My my recommendation would be go make a Giannis 50-50. You'll thank Giannis <laughs> to me later. Yes. That's uh I I can't I can't fault you for that. Well, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify as well. Uh shoot us any questions, comments, feedback over on Twitter or in the Indie Corners comment section. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day. Thank you for listening.